Welcome to our podcast, Doing It Right. This podcast reveals authentic stories from successful leaders doing it right. It's about their journey to become a leader, their choices, motivations, and lessons. In essence, how they built successful personal brands. Your host is Valerie Sokolowski, author of eight leadership books and nationally known as an authority on executive presence and personal branding. Let's get started. Here's Valerie. Well, hello and welcome to the show again. Got my coffee in hand, as I always do. Terrific guests. And before we get started, I just have to thank Betty Ryder Boutique at Preston Center. I love it when I can walk in, put on some wonderful outfit, because I can't afford to buy new outfits every time. And she just keeps me in clothes that are fabulous. You just go in and look for the Red Door Betty Ryder Boutique. So thank you, Betty. We have today a really unusual show because it's leaders from not corporate America, not companies, but business leaders who are in the health profession talking all about culture. Now, you know why I started this show. I only interview vetted authentic people who really are living their values every day at work themselves with their staff with their peers up down and sideways and that's what these two gentlemen are going to talk about So I'm just going to start by giving you the titles because they're long. That's why I have to read them. <laughs> Darren D'Agostino is the Provost and Chief Academic Officer at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I got it out. And Steve Sosland is the Vice Chancellor for Leader and Culture Development at the Texas Tech System. So welcome, gentlemen. I got that out. Good morning. How do you say that when you're introducing yourself? Darren? We say the HSC. <laughs> I'm with HSC. Yeah. May I say that now? Sure. Absolutely. HSC. Okay. Well, I can't wait to get started in talking just about the culture of of uh, the system, the university, what you're doing in the healthcare industry. So first of all, Darren, if I can start with you as a provost, what's a provost? What's a provost? It's a very common question. Uh, I like to describe it as the dean of deans. So the schools within our university essentially report to my office. And how many are there? So we have, uh, we have five schools that uh, actually are interconnected in a number of ways. I should say uh, one, we're about to start another one. We're in the process of developing another school for population and public health, which we're very excited about. Something that's very needed, not only in Texas, but around the country. 
uh, as we begin to pull the schools together, uh, my vision is to actually see all of them interconnecting and collaborating in a way that allows uh, synergies and efficiencies and teaching across the different disciplines. And you know, Darren, this is, this is not an easy thing to do to bring a values-based culture into that large an organization. Steve, you were telling me that there are now, what, 5,000, tell us the number of campuses, how many people, sure. so forth. So we now have five universities as of uh, the most recent Texas legislative uh, session. Uh, of course, the first university, Texas Tech University, the Red Raiders mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in Lubbock, uh, general academic campus with undergraduate and graduate programs. Uh, then we have two health sciences centers, the one where Darren is provost and chief academic officer uh, with a main uh, campus in Lubbock, but we have campuses from Dallas to Amarillo uh, Abilene uh, and Midland and Odessa as well. And then we have a health sciences center that it's its own university that's in El Paso. And we have Angelo State University in San Angelo. And now the newest uh, university is Midwestern State University in Wichita Falls. So, yeah, so all together, you know, we serve uh, ha about half of, of Texas. So 48% of the geographic area of Texas and about 13% of the population. So we are uh, the largest university system that serves West Texas. See, that's what makes me so excited about having you two on because I want you to talk about the difference in bringing, uh, which I know, Steve, you have done before, so I want you to tell sure. the story, bringing culture values-based culture into this kind of an environment. So tell us your story. Sure. Um, well, as you well know, uh, because you, I've been a huge fan of yours long before you started the show, but especially with the Do It Right. It, it's just uh, it's just such a fabulous series. I learned so much with, with uh, every session. So thank you, you thank for what you. you brought to all of us. Um, but what brought you and I together was uh, a sense of a common culture and, and looking at a void in our country um, that it's hard for us to look um, to federal government or state government for answers that to solve the most basic problems and needs that we have, which are how do we bring people together with diverse ideas? It's one thing to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's another thing to bring these ideas together in a way that is healing and, and brings us uh, towards what we have in common. Many organizations talk about values. In fact, uh, go to websites or walk through the halls of, of organizations and companies, we're likely to find some document somewhere. On the wall. On the wall. There it is. But are we <laughs> seeing those being lived? No. Yeah, in the people. And that, that's, that's the issue. Yeah. So I've been fortunate that I've been in five industries and throughout my career, I, the one thing, actually when I got to my fifth industry, higher education, I had to look back and say, what the heck am I doing with my life? I mean, does this make any sense? Hmm. And it was a serious question, not rhetorical. I really wanted to find out, am I just bouncing around? What am I going to do when I grow up? Which is the value, by the way, of you coming here because you had this experience and so much richness to share. So what was that common thread as I looked back? It was that 
throughout my career, I've worked in organizations where we came together because we had common core values. And that's when I found my calling. So my purpose. That your calling and purpose. And my purpose is to, is to really influence the lives of those who will transform the lives of others. And values-based culture is the conduit for that. The difference is this, and, and it, we've, we've tried it in, in business, we've tried in corporate America, we've tried it in the military, we've tried it in restaurants, we've <laughs> tried it in healthcare, and we've tried it in higher ed, and it, and it works. And that is, instead of someone in the ivory tower saying, hey, these are great values, go out and live them, and tell people what their values should be, we, and even though they're really good words and good values, we flipped it around and we said, why don't we assume that the people in our organizations are bringing their values to us? And that their values didn't come from their organization, their values came somewhere else. Maybe from parents or grandparents in a nurturing environment, coaches and mentors and, and teachers, but not all of us grew up in nurturing environments. We've grown up hard. Maybe they came from lessons learned growing up hard. But by the time they become our employees, our team members, our partners, it, they have a set of values. If we will listen to them and identify those values, we can then find out what we have in common. And what if we just build a culture around those values that we have in common? That's okay. how we've done it. I have to stop you there because this is so counterintuitive to many years ago when in my Valorant company leadership development firm, I would go into companies and what I was asked to do is get the Valerie senior leadership together and we're going to come up with our mission statement mm -hmm. and our purpose and our values. And so we would take a day or two and we'd go through, you know, all the flip charts on the wall, Darren, and, and uh, the discussion, but it was the people at the top. And then I would say, now, how are you going to implement this? Well, we need to have another meeting. <laughs> so go ahead from there. You're right on. But, but you've hit on <laughs> the, the issue, right? Uh -huh. and, and for those who want to be consultants that want to be able to sell their services over a very long period of time, I think that model might work. And that's not, I know you, that's not the way that you went. You were trying to help leaders uh, be self-sufficient for their organizations to keep going so you could go to another organization, right? So how do we do that? We've got, it, what we believe, and, and Darren and I have now done this together in two, yeah, two universities. And what we believe is that if we start from the ground up and if it's and if we get senior leaders to say that whatever the team comes up with and we're going to be there for these meetings, we're going to we're going to participate as a participant, but not leading, not leading it. We're not going to name the values. We're going to be part of the group. Whatever we come up with, we will be the first role models. We will live it. So in these values summits or values retreats that we hold in different organizations, not only do we identify the core values that we all have in common, that we share, we define them because integrity, for example, is common, right. but how do we define it? And so we find a common definition and we go through an exercise until everybody can agree on it. And most importantly, we come up with specific behaviors that would indicate when we're living those values. That's the key. After we're done, we have a draft document. 
We put draft across a draft watermark and we go out and we have town hall meetings until we've had given a chance for every employee from 30 in a small group to 10,000 in a larger team that every employee has a chance to comment, edit, and we keep editing until we get it right. Continuing. So Darren, you, wow, you have the challenge to operationalize this across all the, how do you do that? First, I love the word challenge, right? <laughs> You're it, a disruptor. I do. I like the word You're challenge. You're a disruptor it's, too. We got two disruptors here. Uh, yeah, I'm actually, I need to talk with Steve about changing my title and adding a little bit of disruptor or something in there. But, um, you know, with all joking aside, it is a challenge because it, it is, use the word, counterintuitive for, for many. And uh, just tell me what I have to do mm -hmm. is, a common, is a common phrase. One of the biggest challenges that I think I've seen now doing this in two different institutions is uh, what was commented on. The leadership has to buy into it and accept the fact that everybody that's working there is developing the value statement. Not them, but everybody who's working there. And that, I think, is the necessary first step to get commitment from everybody because they're generating it. They're buying it. Um, they're buying into the process and they're participating from the very beginning. Now, that's short-lived. I think that's a very narrow window where you have to strike that iron while it's, while it's hot. And so before, and this is where Steve's talent is, he's already conceptualized the timeline and how we have to move forward with this. And having done this twice, you've stuck to that timeline. So we've been able to hit the iron while it's hot. From there, I think you start to see natural champions. You see, you know, the early adopters that jump in right away. And, and I can honestly say the first time I did this, it, it resonated so much with me that I was an early, an early adopter and began to finally realize in corporate America, even though it was higher education, there's still a very real business that's wrapped around it that there are people that believe the same way I do and are driven by the same things that I, that got me into medicine and got me into the fields and teaching and things like that. So it was an easy leap for me. The hard part was honing those skills and I'm still doing it. It's, it's a journey. It's continuing to understand how to work with everybody and, and teams and uh, the late adopters we're not going to get into the laggards at this point, I don't think. We might. Uh, <laughs> we may. They'll probably leave. Well, you know, you would think, right? You but higher education, as we were talking about before, higher education is an environment that allows laggards to continue. And we have to understand how to work with them uh, or work around them to be able to achieve the goals. I want to get into a little bit about both of you personally, because it starts from there, the mm -hmm. inside out, doesn't it? That's why, that's why you can watch people long enough and their behaviors say so much, mm -hmm. right? So Darren, go back to why you even became a physician. Oh, well, that's going way back. That's ancient history, right? <laughs> Um, I think, uh, you know, very early on the school district that I grew up in, and this was back in New York, um, I lived on Long Island. They actually did tests to find out what we had aptitude for. And mine came out, you're going to be a pediatrician. 
a pediatrician. Well, it's yeah. healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. And and I loved working with kids, and um, you know, did my actually for my entire professional career, wanted to really develop that relationship. So that even though I became an internist and take care of adults, I had no problem taking care of younger kids uh, down to, you know, say 14 years old. And it was very unique because it highlighted one of the first obstacles I had as a, as a physician. And that was insurance didn't generally cover me unless I had special considerations to be able to take care of people less than 18. And it was one of the first things that jumped out in my mind is why is this industry of insurance dictating what I can do? I was trained and, you know, perfectly capable of. Um, and what had to develop from there was a specialty called MedPeds, medicine and pediatrics, I believe, driven because of the insurance industry. Now, so all of these things are influencers on me as a professional developing as a physician early in my career. Um, always wanted to be a physician. I think by nature, I'm a fixer, which has gotten me in trouble. Uh, so I generally try to leave that one at work and deal with the things that I have to do with, uh, with my patients. But How's that working out for you? It's yeah. working great since I learned how to leave it at work. Leave it at work. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, you know, one of the challenges that I've had is working within a system that has external forces pushing on the real goals of those in healthcare, in all health professions. And I think some of those early experiences really um, gave me a, um, a passion to figure out a better way to do it. And then fast forward, uh, I had a very active practice, took care of a lot of very complex patients, um, worked in the pain field for a while because we just, the suffering was just so heartbreaking and you know nobody was doing it where I was working and we got into, developing programs and helping people. And it was those external forces that challenged their success. So there's gotta be a better way to do it. I kept telling myself. Eventually I was recruited to become a chair of a department of medicine in Texas. And that's actually how Steve and I met. Uh, he was at the same institution and the values journey began um, through Steve's leadership and, and a new office, uh, the office of uh, People Development, people yeah, development. The Office of People Development. And I, I asked Steve, I said, what's a people, uh, a chief people officer? And what was your answer? <laughs> my answer was, uh, it's my role to change people or change people. <laughs> That's pretty clear. <laughs> and, you know, what was interesting. Hey, that's right. And, and that's exactly where I was just about to go is during this values journey, what jumped out at me was behaviors. You mentioned it before. We all have the lip service to the values we, we own, whether we've developed them personally or they've been influencing us and we've absorbed, but it's the behaviors. Uh, one of my mentors very early in my career brilliant physician used to say, people talk with their feet. And it took me a while to truly understand what he was talking about, but it was the behaviors and actions that people are displaying that really demonstrate their values. And this values journey is, is nothing unique. Sorry, Steve. I mean, it's, it's what many people on quests have finally come back to. 
the hard part, the unique part, is being able to implement it in a system that really initially didn't want that. And what we're finding now in all the leadership books we're reading and all the podcasts we're watching and all the shows are people that are finally saying there's a better way to do it. And it all seems to come back to values. And we've talked about this. Yeah. It's common sense. Yes. The problem with common sense is it's not common practice. Well, what's the hardest part? What's the easiest part of what you have accomplished, both sure. of you, in this journey of bringing values, values-based culture uh, to, to healthcare? It's just really so simple. Why aren't more people doing it? Yeah. Why aren't more health centers and health environments grabbing this? For heaven's sakes, I'm a patient. Mm-hmm. I would much rather know that I am with a physician that has that kind of a mindset. I, I have to say, recently I've had two dear friends who have been diagnosed with a terrible disease. And in both cases, they, as a patient, said, and one of them is in the industry, is in the field, healthcare field, and the coldness, and it's, well, it's black and white, this is what you have, this is the treatment. Uh, how does that go with value-based physicians? So again, how does this play out? How do, you, how do you tell these people and work with these people to live their values every day for the patient's sake too, never mm-hmm. mind their own? Well, if I go back to your question about, you know, why aren't more organizations doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll let, and then why don't you take, you know, how do, how do we do this uh, on the patient care side? Um, I think there are three reasons. Um, the first comes with priorities. So if we think about it, mm-hmm. uh, let's say that we, we hire a new CEO or president in our world um, and, or any senior leader, but if we start at the top and if we, if we hire someone or we promote someone, to the, someone in that position, then what do you think their first priority is? You, you, this is your world, so... Bottom line. Yeah, they're looking at the bottom line, right? So they want to get bottom line results as quickly as possible to prove that the board or whoever hired or promoted them made the right decision. So they're going after the results. Well, for those of us who have studied... Uh, uh, you know, uh, Pat Lanchoni's model of the five dysfunctions of a team and it has a pyramid, uh-huh. right? Trust at the bottom. Trust is at the bottom, results are at the top. And what we know is that when when leaders, and, and anecdotally, and the studies have shown, when we go into an organization, we focus on results first, it, we seldom get there as quickly. And so I think it's the priority that, okay, we've got to quickly get results instead of First, building trust and working on how do we work through conflicts and how do we get a joint commitment from the team and then accountability, which I'm going to talk about, and, and then, then we'll get the results. Okay. So I, I think that's, that's part of it, is that we've got to build that foundation of trust first. We think that building a culture helps us with that. But I think that the second thing is accountability. Accountability is tough. Because if I'm going to hold you accountable, 
then first I have to hold myself accountable and I have to be willing to have you hold me accountable. Accountability is really, really tough because that gets in to the conversations people just don't like having that kind of interpersonal conflict. Right. So while I think we are both good at accountability conversations, it's no easier for, for us than it is for others. Our gut still turns. We still have those tough times. But because kind-hearted is one of our values, we can be kind and hold someone accountable to tough things, even if it means that they're not on the right bus and we help them find another one. We can be kind. So I think that that first we've got to help people with their priorities, and second we have to help them to be able to hold themselves accountable. And the third thing it gets wrapped around this term soft skills. Oh, that's just a soft oh, skill. Oh, I just don't right? like that term. And so when <laughs> I hear it, yeah. well, well, let me ask you, how do you do it? So when you're with a client and they talk about soft skills and, you're, and you feel that twinge, <laughs> how do you respond? Oh, very clearly. Yeah. Soft skills are bring the hard dollars. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> that's that my, one yeah, of my teachable points sure. of view because soft skills are very simply how you build relationships with people. I love that. If you can't get to know someone and it's a heart connection, I don't care. What's the old statement? I don't care how much you know until you know. I know how much you care. Exactly. I mean, yeah. it's been for centuries around. Yeah. But I will never forget people saying, someone said to me early on, Valerie, why are you building a business on soft skills? Companies will never pay for soft skills. People are supposed to just have those. Well, that was years ago. And I looked at that person and I said, you know, I've built a whole lifetime at that time, young lifetime, believing that's the core of anything. So I just walked out and did it. Yeah. But that's it. And I've got an engineering yeah. background, so I can't come at it a little bit more quantifiably when I get that. But it's really the same same thing, just a different way, a different approach. I'll actually say, let's do a little exercise. Let's get a clean sheet of paper and let's write down. I want you to think about this past week and write down the things that took the most time for you. Let's let's look at your the bingo. Time. And then let's take a look at the things that gave you joy and energy and the things that drained you. And what were those activities? And the, on both sides of it, a lot of them are around people in interpersonal. Yeah. But when they're promoting somebody or when they're giving awards or when they're doing the positive things that gives them joy and energy, and for a lot of people, when they're having those difficult accountability conversations, they had to fire somebody, they had to talk to somebody that was that was underperforming, or somebody brings them, you know, it's that constant flow in the the room. Soft, soft skills. skills. Why are yep. soft skills so hard? I don't know. I don't know. I love that. So we got the engineering approach and the simple approach. Not uh, simple. Oh well. Okay. Not simple <laughs> for at me. All. <laughs> Darren, we talked about so much of this last night, and you indicated, uh, to my surprise, that it was hard for you to come to te Texas Tech. What was so difficult about that decision? 
Well, uh, so it wasn't hard to come to Texas Tech Health Sciences Center. Yeah, this is first I've heard this. Yeah. I, I misspoke. I misspoke. <laughs> no, you make yeah, it clear. I do want to clarify that since yes, Steve is in that. the system. Please get me know. off the hook. But um, it was actually, it was a very difficult personal and professional decision because of the environment I came from. So my formal training, I'm an osteopathic physician. And so the uh, world that I built for the first 25 years of my career have been intimately connected to the osteopathic profession. And this move, not simply because it was Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, but it was, a, it was outside of that field of osteopathic medicine, yeah. leadership, and uh, because the profession isn't as large as our MD colleagues, um, you know, people that are in leadership positions generally have a core group of people around them that they're very familiar with. And so the challenge, the personal challenge for me was taking, you know, was this the right move to take my skills to the next level? And I think I also told you, and I, I think I mentioned to Steve, I didn't think I was going to get out of the first round of interviews. And my wife and I had a bet, and I lost. I got out of the first round. Grateful. Um, you know, and I, I am very grateful. And I've said it's been a blessing, and it's been, you know, wonderful. And here's, here's what it boiled down to for me. For me, the values culture, what we were driving here at this school, the interconnectedness of all of the health sciences, not just medical and medical school, but all of the health sciences. And I truly believe, truly, 100%, that the only way to care for patients is with a team. That old model, uh, was it Winston Churchill said, Americans do everything great after they've tried everything else? <laughs> We've tried everything else. Right. And the teams working together with the expertise in each team has to be driven. And so what I saw was part of my personal journey in growing as a leader and developing and being able to interface goes back to what I said before, always looking for a better way. I think the best opportunity to model this is going to be at TTUHSC. Thank and God. I've been very, very fortunate to have people around me at this school that have that same vision which is something that I had been lacking at most institutions that I went to. There were pockets of champions, but not this organized leadership model. And I think um, it made it very easy. Once I came to, um, uh, you know, settled on and came to an understanding within myself that this was the right move, it was very easy to pull the trigger at that point. What a dynamic duo. Both of you, I want to ask this question. You've had lots of experiences, and sometimes we learn from our failures. Mm. Would you be willing to share, and I'll start again with you, Darren, because what's coming to my mind is your conversation about I had a bad boss. Well, haven't we all? Would you talk about that, please, since we've all had that? Yeah. So I won't name the institution, uh, good. but years ago, um, I, had, I had the very good fortune to work for one of the worst bosses I ever had. Pretty much every decision that this person has made, if I come across the process with the same thing happening here, if I make the opposite decision, it'll probably work, right? 
And um, one of the things that was important to me was paying attention to the actions that this person brought to the table, the behaviors of how he treated others and how others responded, um, the lack of communication, two-way communication, um, the lack of hearing, not paying time to just listen. Uh, all of these things put together were behaviors of leaders that I recognized very early aren't going to get you anywhere. As a matter of fact, they're going to destroy the system. Um, and I watched that happen. And it wasn't until a real champion came in, uh, replaced that person. And as they started to inculcate themselves in the process, into the culture there, there was one glaring difference between the two right away that I saw. And we both know this individual. He listened. He spent time and talked with the people, the principal people first, and then all of the other leadership mm -hmm. within that institution. And I felt heard. And to be honest with you, I stayed in that institution after that change occurred for another bunch of years, learning from that person and the team that he brought in. Um, it, was, it was very profound. Uh, and I'm glad I was able to recognize that it wasn't just an emotional departure. It was, it was learning experience. And I think we learn from all of our experiences as long as we pay attention to them. This is the mistakes that people make, uh, you know, me included. That's the, that's wisdom and wisdom is scar tissue. That's a teachable point of view. Yeah, it is. Bingo. Yep. And I, I learned that from, uh, from a person who ran the MBA program that I went to. His name was, if I can drop his name, John McCracken. Was a great guy. Is brilliant. He's an economist. But wisdom is scar tissue. If we're not learning from our mistakes, we're not, we're not learning. That's a great, we're stagnant. great statement. I bet you've had something, Steve. Oh, What's I, your story? My life is built on the teachable moments that, uh, <laughs> that I've learned. So I'll go back to the last time I was here with you. And uh, you uh, had asked me to describe the journey that I was on. And I said that I'm on a journey, or we're on a journey, um, to create a sustainable values-based culture. And um, I've had something happen recently for me to question uh, that because if, if we look at to create a sustainable values-based culture, which of those words makes it most challenging? Sustainable. Sustainable, right? So I had um, told you a story when we first met about um, working with a hospital in Central Texas in the Hill Country where it was an underperforming hospital ranked in the bottom third of the nation. And, and by starting with culture and bringing the values together, we were able to use that as our foundation to build trust, uh, to hold ourselves accountable, and then the performance followed. And we were able, in 2014, that hospital won the Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award. In 2013, it actually won the now Malcolm Baldridge National Leadership Award. It's huge. And it is, and it was with mostly the same people. And that, these were folks that came in that were, that just stepped up. They just needed uh, the boundaries and, and they needed a clear vision, clarity of vision, and then turn them loose to be their best version of themselves. And when that happened, it, wow. same people hmm. turned the hospital around. It was phenomenal to be a part of that. And, um, and then we came into higher ed and, and, um, 
and did that uh, initially in Fort Worth at the University of North Texas Health Sciences Center where we worked together, and now Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and, the, and now the Texas Tech System. So that's how that has expanded. So what happened? What was my failure? So I defined sustainable around the organization and, and what I thought was that in order to have a, a culture sustainable, it would have to live on in the organization. And the way to do that was to make sure that whoever we hired as a successor to the CEO and the senior leaders would also need to be aligned with that culture. And then it could live on and the culture would be sustainable. And that's how I defined it. So I defined sustainable as organizational sustainability of a culture. I still believe sense. that can be true, right? It makes sense. Southwest Airlines has done that over 50 years. But what happened? Well, we selected a CEO who, at the time, we thought was the best CEO to be the successor. But what's happened is uh, maybe, as Jim Collins says in um, How the Mighty Fall, hubris born of success just because we're good at one thing doesn't mean we can be good at everything mm. uh, that makes sense too so the organization is no longer known for that values-based culture so i looked at this and i looked in the mirror and said i failed uh and you i need to learn that from ownership that. you I, took sure that? sure because I, I was the one who said we're gonna we're here to create a sustainable values-based culture and even though i'd left i looked back and i and i i was very disheartened i i was um you know, probably approaching depression over this because I had so many friends that had been with the hospital that called me and told me why they were leaving and that the culture's gone and I'm out of oh. here. And, um, and when I say so many, I mean over 50 people. Now, I hired three of them. and mm -hmm. they're, they're, in, they're in Lubbock now. Uh, but I couldn't hire them all. Mm. But then I had an epiphany one day when I talked to one of the people who left who was in a senior director role with a lot of leadership responsibility, and he left. And you know what he started doing? Mowing yards. What? Mowing yards. Had a senior leader responsibility at a hospital, and he said, you know, uh, I, 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 I no longer, my values and wanting to live my values, I can't live them here. So he left and he started mowing yards. But then... Because he was still living his values, he started getting more business and more business and started hiring people. And now he's built a company and he's building his own values-based landscape and construction company. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and, and by learning from him, I started uh -huh. saying, wait a minute. There are two ways, at least two mm. ways to be sustainable. One is the organization. Yes, an organization can. There are a lot of organizations who've had sustainable cultures. We think we're doing it now with yeah. at the Health Sciences Center. We've got a we we had a president, Ted Mitchell, who's now the chancellor of the system. He left, and in the selection process, we had three very strong uh, finalist candidates. But the strongest by far, Lori Rice Spearman. Dr. Lori Rice Spearman is now president at the Health Sciences Center. Darren reports to her. The reason we chose her as president is because she was the best by far to lead us to the next step in the journey. So organizations can be sustainable, but maybe more importantly, individuals who find alignment of their own personal core values with an organization, once that clicks, and we know this mm -hmm. personally, they will never want to work 
in an organization that doesn't have a values-based culture, or one of four things. Mm -hmm. They will either stay in that organization as long as it maintains the culture, they will leave and find it elsewhere, or they'll leave and go to an organization that doesn't have it and help start it, or they'll go out like Dustin and start their own company and make it values-based. That is just probably one of the most um, significant things. Teachable moments. A that's yeah. a teachable moment for me too. You have nailed it. And the alignment there, Steve, is that back to the show and starting it, the word authenticity. <laughs> oh, what can I say? You think that people will maintain. I, I, I think everybody gets up every morning and says, I'm, I really do want to do the best job I can do. But unless okay. it's got the foundation of this building that's built on integrity and your values, your values are your operating principles. Sure. We take them with us everywhere we go, and they are observable. So... I love what you said. This interview has been phenomenal. I can't wait. We have time wait. for one more short Absolutely. I'll have a okay cup of coffee time? with you. Or will we come back <laughs> a third time? No, come on. Okay. All right. So one more. You and I have been students of an author, Edgar Schein, you know, who's, who's certainly influenced coaching, professional and executive coaching. Uh, one of his books, Humble Inquiry. Hmm. I was rereading Humble Inquiry about the, about the types of humility that Edgar Schein talks about. But I was also thinking about ego. Uh, <laughs> I think about ego a lot because Kelly, my wife, you know, reminds me of the size of my ego. Uh, and she's right. So I was trying to define ego because ego gets a bad rap. But I, but I think there's another side. I don't think ego is good or bad. I think that it just it can be appropriate or inappropriate, but I don't think it's good or bad. Because I believe that ego is what we use in order to take on the toughest challenges. Ego protects us. When I was an infantry officer in the army and I said, follow me into dangerous places, it was an irrational move mm -hmm. to, to ask people to come and, and where their lives would be at risk. But on the other hand, by doing that, we were able to save more lives, and, and, but it was ego, right? And how does that transfer into our world, your world, all of our worlds? I believe that we need people with strong egos that will take on tough challenges when other people would say it can't be done. But ego, unbridled, untempered, yeah. is arrogance. Overused strength. Right. Overused so if we look strength. at a yin and yang model <clears throat> where there's balance, mm -hmm. I think that balance comes ego, and I'm thinking it's humility. It's we before me. If it's for a higher cause, if it's for more meaning, and it's not about me and where I'm going to go or what it's going to do for me, but together we do that as an organization, then with what you talked about when you started Do It Right, it's about leaders who are, and if, I'm a, if I want the ultimate test of leaders, pretty simple. Look over my shoulders, anybody following me? Leaders and followers work together to move to a place where we want to be, to move to our future. That's what leaders and followers do together. And so it has to be balanced between what is in the best interest of a group, the organization, the team, but go together to do the tough things. I cannot do it alone. 
It must be with the team and the team, and it's my responsibility as a leader to make sure the team understands their role, that I may have a, a different role, but we're only going to accomplish this by working together. Beautifully said. And you mentioned that last night uh, when we talked about emotional intelligence. Absolutely. Yep. And it's, it's often... In, in my experience, and certainly in all the things that I've read, emotional intelligence seems to be the trigger. If you don't have it, something's going to happen downstream. You're, there, there'll be a challenge. And this is where I think the ego piece that you just mentioned comes into play, right? It's not balanced. It's not there to protect. It's not there to help influence. It's there to take over. And that causes a problem. And uh, I can honestly say in most of the challenges that I've seen, we've seen big companies. Uh, I mentioned last night Enron. Enron was an exercise in, in um, emotional intelligence failure. And the bad side of ego. And the bad yeah. side of And the of worst ego. side of pride. Mm -hmm. And as we study these things, we see this replicated in a lot of failures of organizations and companies and practices and businesses you, you there you're not taking the information in and understanding what the balance point is to be able to drive and move forward you know steve you had mentioned something before um you have to have leaders you have to have followers that creates movement it's action right right and if you don't have all of that and there's no movement you just have a meeting you know, you're, you're not really getting anywhere and doing anything. And I think, um, I think it's that balance that allows these things to really play out in the right way to allow leaders to lead, followers to understand that I'm following for a reason, and for teams to join together and become part of, uh, part of the solution. In medicine, it's pretty easy. We have a patient that we're focused on. And, you know, all of this conversation is not to say that physicians don't have values. That's not the case. No, no, no. We're talking about organizational structure that allows those values to blossom and help guide appropriate decisions and focus on our patients to be better. And in this case, the organization becomes the patient. So how do we all work together focusing on the patient to make it blossom? And that's really the whole the whole point of it. You know, what I know about both of you, this has been wonderful, what I know about both of you is this, you came from lots of successes. You've had your reputations before you came together now. And so what a joy that this, um, this system has the two of you. I can't wait to have a year from now, think about coming back and saying, and now where we are, where are we now? Well, we have so phenomenal teams. You really do. You're living it too. And I great, I'm grateful you are on the show. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And it does go back. I never seem to mention the books. You know, there is one called Do It Right, if you're interested. It's on Amazon. And so is Monday Morning Leadership for Women. Leadership is leadership. But mm, there's a nuance, so I'd invite you to take a look at both of those. Before we leave, you know that I always end with um, a, a uh, not a teachable point of view, but a Valerieism. So here's my Valerieism for today. You gotta feed your head to get ahead. I love that. Love it. Actually, my husband gave that to me. You gotta feed your head to get ahead, and education is your food. Mm. 
There's never like been a one. time, in my humble opinion, that learning is more important than now. Amen. You can hit a button and you can learn anything you want, whether it's formal education, whether it's a trade school, whether it's learning online and all of the above. If you don't feed your head with good stuff, it's going to go to waste. And the kind of impetus for this Valerieism is this. Gaming. Never opening your head and never lifting up your head. What's this all? Gaming is okay. That's all right. But 24-7, what are you learning? So I guess I would just get on my little soapbox a minute and say, really pay attention. There's so much wisdom out there. These two gentlemen have shared it. And it's for you to absorb and feed yourself. And that's it for today. Come back next time for another great episode. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. To receive Valerie's voice, free monthly leadership tips, and to learn more about her leadership programs and coaching, visit her website, ValerieAndCompany.com. Next week, we'll be here again to inspire, engage, and equip you with teachable points of view from successful leaders who have been doing it right. Until then, lead authentically.